Well, as most of you know by now, I'm a bit of a war buff. I love that aspect of history, especially World War II. So I'm always drawing on that for illustrations, and I'm going to do it again. But if you know a thing or two about history, then you might remember how World War II ended. In the spring of 1945, the Americans and the Soviets were converging on Berlin. On April 30th, 1945, the Soviets, just two blocks away, Hitler and his wife committed suicide in their bunker to avoid capture. And just seven days later, Germany surrendered, and the war in the West was over. Not so for the East, although Japan was clearly defeated, they were still hanging on, and they kept fighting, didn't want to surrender. You know how that story ended. The Americans dropped two atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and the Japanese had no choice but to call it quits, and they surrendered on September 2nd, 1945, almost to the day 70 years ago. And finally, the greatest war the world had ever known was over. But it's not the end of the story. There was quite an aftermath to World War II. Of course, for the Allies, there was nothing but celebration. The Americans had VJ Day, Victory Over Japan Day. Thousands of Navy men spilled into the streets of San Francisco for a celebration that lasted for three days. Same thing in Times Square. They saw the biggest crowd there ever. Not everyone was celebrating, though. Of course, nothing could be done to bring back the many casualties of the war. Upper estimates claim 80 million people died from the fighting and the famine and the disease. As a consequence of all the devastation, there had to be some reckoning. The Axis countries had to be held accountable for all of their crimes against humanity. And a special note, you might remember the Nuremberg Trials where prominent members of the Nazi party were brought together and tried for their crimes. Most of them were imprisoned or hanged. But I tell you, no one shed a tear for these men because they were merely just just receiving a taste of the justice that they deserved. World War II also resulted in the landscape of the world being changed. Literally, some cities were completely destroyed. They had to be totally rebuilt. The U.K. and France fell as world powers, while the U.S. and the U.S.S.R. became the new world superpowers. And additionally, in God's providence, World War II led to the creation of the state of Israel back in their land in 1948, after thousands of years. Pretty interesting. Overall, though, all can agree that the world has become an entirely different place after that greatest of wars. And you you take that in your mind. You take what happened after World War II. You have all the celebration, all the judgment, all the aftermath. And you multiply that by like a million or something. And you're, you're starting to approach what it will be like when Jesus returns. There will be a celebration. There will be a judgment. And there will be quite an aftermath. Believe it or not, this is part seven in our series going through the Olivet Discourse found in Mark chapter 13. You can open your Bibles there now to Mark 13. It's a substantial chapter. It's it's been on the horizon as we've been going through Mark for quite some time. We're finally here. And this, this discourse or teaching that Jesus gives, it's the second longest recorded one, second only to the Sermon on the Mount. But when it comes to depth and detail and, and controversy, the Olivet Discourse is clearly the more challenging one to handle. And that's why we've been really taking our time to find out what, what's going on here. We want to stop and study and just understand what Jesus has to say specifically about end times. Now, I know for most of you this is old news, but just in case you're new here today, this is Jesus teaching just a few days before his crucifixion. He's sitting atop the Mount of Olives looking at the city. And in response to him condemning the temple and Jerusalem, the disciples ask him some questions about his coming and and the the fullness of the kingdom, the end of the age. And so Jesus' response, he tells them many things that must take place before the end comes. In summary, Jesus spends most of his time telling the disciples about the future time of tribulation. It's a seven-year time period on the earth in the future when God's wrath is unleashed and poured out. In essence, just, just think of World War II, multiply it by a million, spread it truly across the globe, factor in unprecedented satanic and demonic influence, include an antichrist figure who makes Hitler look like Gandhi, and don't forget global natural disasters, and you've got a basic snapshot of what that time will be like. The tribulation presents man in his greatest rebellion against God and the gospel. Satan's influence is at its highest high. Man's depravity is at its lowest low. And and as a result, God's wrath is just unleashed on the world. 
And over the course of many weeks, we've studied now what's what's happening this time, the things in leading up to and including the second coming of Christ according to God's plan and his purposes. And, and mostly, it's, it's been bad news. It's been a sad, depressing story, very doom and gloom. It's just, look, there's judgment coming. It's the end. And it's not been too fun to learn about in a sense. We've watched how evil will completely overtake the world and then God's wrath will just rain down and consume the world. Not the cheeriest of stories in that regard. But finally, last Sunday, we got to the good part of the story, namely the second coming. Where after all that, after the tribulation, Jesus finally returns to reclaim the earth and to reign. It's the, it's the ultimate victory day where he comes triumphantly over sin and Satan and he begins his reign. Jesus tells of his return, actually rather briefly in the Olivet Discourse, found in verses 24 through 27, but it's still good. We studied that passage last week, but let's actually begin our time now by giving that another read-through, just to bring you back up to speed. Mark 13, and look at verses 24 through 27. Jesus finally telling about the good part, his return. He says in verse 24, But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers that are in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send forth the angels and will gather together his elect from the four winds from the farthest end of the earth to the farthest end of heaven. From this text, last time we discussed the timing of the second coming, the sign of the second coming, the display of the second coming, and the judgment of the second coming. And overall, our goal is to try and form just a clear, well-rounded picture of all the events leading up to and including the, the second coming of Christ. You gotta know the, the return of Jesus. It's it's right at the center of our Christian faith and our hope, and so you you just need to have a clear understanding of what that means, what it entails, what it what it brings. Last week we made a lot of progress learning about these events, culminating with Christ coming back, but we're not quite finished. And we made it through our text in Mark 24 through 27. But and before we just keep moving in Mark 13, I wanted to come back and spend a little bit more time just fleshing out more of what scripture says about that time, about Christ's return. Because there's so much, and it's worth your time. This isn't a central doctrine. It's actually an incredibly practical doctrine as well. You really just need to consider how the world will be impacted when Jesus returns and how you should be impacted right now in light of that return. Because it's meant to alter, change, direct your life right now. So in light of that, we're, we're coming back today for an additional study. You could say a bonus study on the second coming of Christ. And this time I want to focus mostly on the aftermath. After he comes, then what? what? What does it mean? What does his coming mean for the world? What does it mean for God's enemies? What does it mean for God's friends? Well, what's the impact and the aftermath of, of his return? Well, to help answer that, I want to give you six consequences of the second coming. You can put it that way. Six consequences of the second coming, so that you might better appreciate the impact of Christ's return. Six consequences of the second coming, so that you might better appreciate the impact of Christ's return. It's really, it's mostly a a topical bonus study on the second coming, but the impact, the Bible has so much to say about the impact, we we have to include it. Now to get this started, we're mostly going to pick up from where we left off last time and cover what the second coming means in regards to Christ's enemies. We'll start off here, number one, what it means for Antichrist. What the second coming means for Antichrist. The first consequence for the Antichrist. Turn now to Revelation 19. We're going to jump out of Mark now and, and go elsewhere. Turn to Revelation 19. This is where we ended last week, if you recall. We learned that right before Jesus comes back, the world is at war. The nations have converged in the land of Israel for this great final battle. And at the center of it all, of course, is this man, Antichrist, who through satanic deception, he's led the entire world basically to worship him as God, to follow him. Well, very near the end, though, God's final bowls of wrath are poured out in the world. His judgment's falling, and as a result, the whole sky goes dark. And the whole world, everyone in the world is gripped with this fear because they know something is about to happen. And then, 
Then every eye sees him. Jesus appears, lighting up the dark sky, followed by an army of saints and angels. Revelation 19 tells about this return. Notably, we read last time how he's, he's coming, pictured at, with this sharp sword coming out of his mouth, a reference to his word, so that with it he might strike down the nations. With the same power that Jesus used to create the world, when he comes back, he will wield that power to judge the world. He comes back and he cleans house. I mean, just imagine you're, you're retired and you have the ability, that the blessing of going on this dream vacation. One whole year, you're going to travel the world. But you don't want to sell your house, so you decide to rent it out for a year. And you go on your trip, have a great time. You come back after a year, and you find your house is totally trashed. The renters have just destroyed your house. So what would you do? You would bring down the hammer. I mean, there, there has to be some reckoning. They must pay. Literally, they, they have to pay for what they did. And when Jesus returns, there, there has to be a reckoning. All those guilty of sin and evil, those who have rebelled against him and ruined his creation, they, they have to pay. Jesus returns as judge, and he begins his judgment with the unholy trinity. The unholy trinity. What's that? What's that? Well, during the tribulation time, there are three personalities in particular who are chiefly responsible for leading the whole world astray and against God. You have the Antichrist, and he's like a counterfeit Christ. There's the false prophet, and he's like a counterfeit Holy Spirit. And of course, there's Satan, who's always been like a counterfeit God. Each of these plays a role parallel, but opposite to the true triune God. And Jesus, he deals first with these three. Specifically, regarding the Antichrist and the false prophet, they receive just just instant judgment. There's no Nuremberg trial. There's, There's no jury. There's no hearing. They're just, they're just executed. Jesus knows what they've done. He comes back as the omniscient Lord of glory. He's their judge. He's their jury. And he's their executioner. All that's left for them is sentencing. That's it. And that's what we read at the end of Revelation 19, verse 20. After Jesus comes back, the text we read last time, 11 through 19, what happens? Verse 20 says, And the beast was seized. It's a reference to who you might know as the Antichrist. And with him, the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. I'm not sure if you know this, but that's actually not talking about hell. Hell is a place where lost sinners go right now to pay for their sins. But Technically, to be a little more technical, the eternal resting place, or should I say the not-so-resting place for those who do not know God, is it's called the lake of fire. It's the lake of fire. What's that place like? I don't fully know. I don't want to fully know. But if the best image Scripture gives is a person who's unable to die, forever floating in a lake that's on fire, doesn't sound like it's a good place to be. But that's where these two first end up. Jesus comes, he gives them, though, merely what they deserve. This is judgment. The same goes for Satan, but not at first. God has somewhat different plans for the world's first sinner. Number two, what it means for Satan. Another consequence of Christ's return, what it means for Antichrist. Number two, what it means for, for Satan himself. And this is found in really the next verse after 21. Look at chapter 20. The first three verses, right after Jesus returns, now what happens with, with Satan? Verse 20, or I'm sorry, chapter 20, verse 1. He says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. After Jesus comes back, he finally deals with that serpent of old, the devil, the one who spoiled God's creation in the first place. From the beginning, Satan's wanted to be God. He's wanted the praise, the glory for himself. 
the world's worship and after his initial deception and in leading mankind into sin, he's pretty much succeeded in receiving the world's praise since the beginning. But when Jesus comes, that, that ends. That evil, that idolatry, that rebellion, it's over. And Satan himself must be judged. And the first phase of his judgment is being bound in a place called the abyss. That's like maximum security death row for demons. That's what it is. Other demons are bound there. And once you go in, you do not come out unless God lets you out. That's how it is everywhere in Scripture. You you go in, you don't come out unless God lets you out. And as a side note, back in Revelation 9, we learn one of the reasons the tribulation is so bad is that during that time, God lets some demons out of the abyss. They've been bound there for thousands of years, the worst of the worst. And he lets them out. And they're allowed to run free and wreak havoc on the earth. Another reason why that time is so bad. Well, here at the end of that time, Satan goes back. Most likely all the other demons go back with him, bound into the abyss. Now you should know, some people, they try really hard actually to spiritualize this passage to claim that Jesus, or rather Satan, is being bound right now. That is very much not the case. I mean, you can read for yourself. When does this take place? It takes place immediately after Jesus returns. I mean, it's very clear, conclusive. He comes and then Satan is bound. In addition, when Satan is bound, the picture is he's totally removed from the earth. He has no more influence whatsoever over God's creation. And most notably, he's unable to deceive the nations. Which, by the way, that is precisely what the New Testament says Satan is doing right now. What's he doing in this age? He's deceiving the nations. 1 Corinthians 4.4 calls Satan the god of this world. Right now, practically, functionally, he is the god of this world. 1 John 5.19 says right now, the whole world lies in his power. That will change when Jesus comes. Satan will finally be undone. He will be completely removed from Christ's millennial kingdom and his reign on earth. Now, after that time, according to God's purposes, Satan is released for a short time. He leads one final rebellion, one last deception, but then comes his ultimate end, his final judgment. It's found in verse 10 of Revelation 20. After that time, it says, the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Serious. But nonetheless, where does Satan himself end up? Also in the lake of fire. As you guys know, some people, they're troubled by what's called the problem of evil. How could a good and powerful God really exist if there's so much evil in the world? But let me just say this in response. In the end, there's no problem of evil. Evil ends. It's, it's over. It's judged. It's all gone. Yes, God in his design, he allows men like Antichrist to rebel against him to commit great atrocities. But in the end, everyone, everything is judged. Evil is removed. Righteousness and goodness prevail. There is, in the end, no problem of evil. God prevails. The same goes for evil people. Number three, a third consequence of when Christ comes back, what it means for unbelievers what it means for Antichrist, what it means for Satan. Third, what it means for unbelievers. And when Jesus comes back, the earth is mostly filled with unbelievers. And we're talking super depraved, wicked, hardened unbelievers. Throughout the tribulation time, billions of people have perished. But billions have survived. So what happens to these people when Jesus comes back? Well, first, regarding everyone assembled against Christ at the Battle of Armageddon. We talked about that last time. Well, those people, they are all immediately killed by Jesus himself. We actually skip the last verse of chapter 19. Go back, chapter 19. After the beast and the false prophet are thrown into the lake of fire, what happens to everyone else? Verse 21, it says, And the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Most likely, Jesus just speaks a word, and they die. And they enter into judgment. That's what happens. We read how Jesus comes to judge and make war. His war ends really quick. There's no fighting involved. And they enter into destruction. 
What about everyone else? What about all the other unbelievers alive on the planet who are not right there? They're still alive. What happens to them? Well, after God's elect are gathered so as to enter Christ's millennial kingdom, the lost, they're also gathered and they enter into judgment. Jesus himself talks about this in Matthew 25 in the Olivet Discourse, talking about the sheep and the goats judgment. All unbelievers, the goats, they're separated, they're sentenced, they're convicted for their hatred of God, the rejection of the gospel, and all their sins. They've rejected Christ, so they have no means of payment. They have to pay for themselves. And so they are sentenced. They all are sentenced to hell, where they will suffer, along with all unbelievers from all ages, until finally, after the millennial kingdom, every unbeliever is resurrected. They're given a body fit for eternity, and then they're all cast into the lake of fire. That's where every enemy of God ever ends up. It's, of course, in a way sad, tragic. It's what sin has done to this world. But God is merely being just. He's merely being just. You know, for people today, even many in the church, they like to sentimentalize the love of God. God is love. That's fully true. God is love. But they take it to mean God is only love. And so they conveniently convince themselves, and I think, oh, God would never judge me. And Jesus especially, he'd never judge me. I mean, Jesus is so loving and tolerant. He's accepting of everybody. So I'm, as long as I'm not hurting anybody, I'm, I'm fine, right? Jesus will accept me, right? But such people are deluded and often deceived by their own sin because it escapes their notice that Jesus himself actually will be their judge. You realize that? Jesus will be the judge of every person. Not the Father, not the Spirit, the Son. John 5.22, the Father has given all judgment to the Son. 2 Timothy 4.1, Christ Jesus is the judge of the living and the dead. And when he returns, the day of reckoning begins. Listen to this one. This is a, this is a heavy verse. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6 through 10. It says, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, verse 8, then he will deal out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day. You know, when it comes to judgment, Jesus, he leads the charge. He is leading the way. Now, there is hope. There is a hope of salvation from Christ's own wrath. He himself offers this hope. In John 5, 24, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. The promise, if you just humble yourself, confess your sin, repent, turn, turn toward Christ, believe on him as Lord and Savior. He promises to to save you, to forgive you your sins, to rescue, deliver you from the wrath to come, to grant you what you don't deserve. That's everlasting life. Sounds like a good deal. Sounds like amazing grace, but Not everyone wants to hear that. They don't want to believe that. They don't want to accept their sin. They don't want to give up their sin. They like believing Jesus is their buddy and they can live as they please. They want to own the fact that they actually deserve a just judgment from an infinitely holy God because they've sinned. Therefore, in response, a lot of people, what do they do? They they mock. Isn't that what Peter says? 2 Peter 3.3 He says, in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust, saying, where is the promise of his coming? They say, Jesus, he's never coming back. Come on, it's not even real. It's been thousands of years. It's all just made up. He's not coming back. There's no judgment. It's what they still say. In response to that, I'll just say, that's why they mourn. That's why when when Jesus comes back, and the whole world sees him, they collectively mourn. Revelation 1.7 says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. When they see him, they will grieve and they will mourn. Why? 
Because at that point, the truth can no longer be denied. Jesus is real. He has come. And whether they want to accept it in their hearts or not, they're going to be judged. Nothing they can do about it at that point. This is what the second coming means for all and believers. The same fate awaits those who die before then, apart from Christ. So understand, what's the impact? What's the aftermath of Christ coming back? First, regarding his enemies, it's it's just judgment. It's all judgment, and, and rightly so. For Antichrist, for Satan, for unbelievers, it's judgment. Thankfully, though, Jesus doesn't come only to judge. We can now switch to something a little more positive and uplifting in that he also comes to redeem. He also comes back to finish redemption. So now let's focus on how Jesus redeems when he comes. Let's let's get to now the better part, right? The good part. Number four, what it means for creation. Talking about the consequences of his coming. I'm going to squeeze this one in here briefly, but what it means for creation. In short, the curse is lifted. The curse is lifted. Remember back in Genesis 3, Satan deceives Adam and Eve into rebelling against God and sinning. And as a result... God curses them, and part of his curse on man is a curse on the earth. The world now, it's fallen, it's broken. Like Romans 8 says, the creation itself was subjected to futility. We live in a fallen world. That's why we have earthquakes and floods and tsunamis and hurricanes and tornadoes and viruses and all that stuff. All those natural disasters. They weren't a part of God's original design for the earth. But now we live in a fallen, broken, cursed world. But when Jesus comes back, the curse is lifted. Eventually, God will recreate the heavens and the earth. There will be a new heavens and new earth. But first, when Jesus comes to reign initially on the earth, he restores the earth. Creation is renewed. And as a result, for example, Isaiah 11 says, the wolf will lie down with the lamb. The animal kingdom is brought back into It's intended order. Isaiah 65 says, if a person dies at 100 years old, they're said to have died young. There's still death. We're in the millennial kingdom, not the eternal kingdom. But it's changed. It's gone back to that pre-flood, even Garden of Eden-like condition. You can take that further. There's a lot to study there. But just in, in brief, when Jesus returns, creation itself is redeemed and restored. And that sounds good. That's some good news. Looking forward to that. But now let's, let's, let's move on. Let's get to the really good part, what it means for believers. Now, number five, what it means for believers. What does the second coming mean for believers? Well, first, for those who are alive at the tribulation, it means rescue. We learned last time when Jesus comes, God's elect are gathered together and they enter into the joy of their master. That includes Gentiles from the world over. It also includes a national Israel, who, as we learned, they are finally redeemed, restored, brought back to God at the very end, right before Jesus comes back. Together, all believers who survive the tribulation, they will enter into that millennial kingdom, and they're the ones who will repopulate the earth. The picture is a little different, though, for believers in Christ before the tribulation. Now, I know some people believe that the second coming and the rapture are the same thing. But we understand scripture to teach the rapture to take place before the tribulation. So in a sense, you could call that the first phase of the second coming, where Jesus, he comes on behalf of his church. So let me tell you a little more specifically what the coming of Jesus means for believers at the rapture, at his coming in the rapture. Maybe three things. First, it means resurrection. His coming for believers starting at the rapture means resurrection. What happens when a Christian dies right now? Their body and their soul are separated. Their soul goes on to be with the Lord in heaven, but their body goes to dust. That's not the final state. God plans to give all people new bodies fit for eternity. And that takes place for believers in this age when Jesus comes at the rapture. Like 1 Corinthians 15 says, the dead will be raised imperishable. All those dead will be raised when he comes given new bodies. And 1 Thessalonians 4 says those who are alive at that time also will be caught up to be with the Lord and they too will be changed, given glorified, resurrected bodies. 
In essence, it really it just spells the completion of our salvation. And right now, are you, are you saved? Hopefully, if you know Christ, you answer that question, yes, but not fully. You realize you're not fully saved? And what I mean by that is simply, <clears throat> right now, we've been redeemed from the penalty of sin, but we haven't been redeemed from the presence of sin. We still have indwelling sin. We have the flesh, the old self. But when Jesus comes, our redemption is completed. The old flesh is gone. We are resurrected, free from the penalty of sin, from the power of sin, free from the very presence of sin. It's all gone. We are fully redeemed. And everywhere in the New Testament, that's, that's the hope. That's the driving hope of believers. And that takes place when Christ comes. Philippians 3, such a great verse, verses 20, 20 through 21 He says, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. Or 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be, but we know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. So first, for believers, what does the coming of Jesus mean? It means resurrection. It means the completion of our redemption. It means our final salvation. Secondly, it also means reward. In Revelation 11, there's a scene where loud voices are heard in heaven praising God. Why? Because verse 18 says they're looking forward to the coming of Christ, and that will mean it's time for the dead to be judged, and it's time for the saints to be rewarded. When Jesus comes, he brings the reward of eternal life. Of course, we don't deserve that reward. We receive all things by grace. But Jesus is free to bestow his blessings on those whom he wishes, and he brings the reward of eternal life for those who believe in him. Second Corinthians 5.10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done whether good or bad. This is a judgment, a judgment for believers. You may have heard it called the the bema seat judgment, the Greek word here. It takes place when Jesus comes at the rapture. 1 Corinthians 4, 5 says, Therefore do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. Understand, it's not a judgment in reference to sins. This is for those who've already been redeemed. Their sins are wiped away. Your sins are gone. You will never be held accountable for your sins. Jesus paid that price. This is a judgment in reference to rewards. In the Olivet Discourse in Matthew, Jesus tells the parable of the talents where these slaves who were faithful in light of their master's absence, they were rewarded accordingly when their master came back. And likewise, Jesus, by grace, chooses to reward us for our faithfulness in his absence. What does that reward look like? Well, like 1 Corinthians 4, 5 says, that each person's praise will come to him from God. It, I'm sure it's enough just to hear from Jesus, well done, a good and faithful slave. That's, that's your reward. I also personally believe that this reward will come in the form of greater service in the kingdom. Those who are more faithful to serve the Lord in his absence will be blessed with the joy of serving him more in his presence. Along these lines, the third, the, the, third, uh, the coming of Jesus also means reigning. What does it mean for believers? It means resurrection. It means reward. Thirdly, it means reigning. Several times it's said the saints will reign with Jesus when he returns. Hey, he's the Lord of glory, but he, by grace, chooses to allow us to be a part of his dominion. 2 Timothy 2.12, if we endure, we will also reign with him. Revelation 5, in fact, you're so close, just turn back to Revelation 5, verses 9 and 10. This scene in heaven. Revelation 5, you have these 24 elders surrounding the throne and, and also saints and angels, this whole heavenly host 
And they all sing this song, verse 9. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they, they will reign upon the earth. It's talking about Jesus. He will reign, and they will reign with him. That's a snapshot of our eternal life, what Jesus brings with him when he comes. Resurrection, reward, and then reigning, just being with him forever. Now you think about that, it should give you no occasion to boast because you didn't do anything. I mean, no one there deserves to be there. Do you understand that about about heaven? No one there deserves to be there. It's only inherited by pure grace. It's simply by grace that God opened our eyes to behold his gospel, to believe that he plucked us out just by his grace. And so because of that, all praise returns to him. You know, a couple times it's interesting. Peter and Paul, they mentioned that when Jesus comes back, we're going to receive a crown. You remember hearing about that? We receive a crown of glory. Like, for example, 1 Peter 5, 4. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. That kind of sounds silly. Like, we're going to receive a crown. I mean, what do we do? Jesus did it all. Why would we get the crown? I mean, he, he did the work. He paid the price. Why would we get a crown? We don't deserve glory, but we're given this crown, the crown of eternal life. But, you know, relatedly, I think it's significant that in Revelation chapter 4, I mean, you're right there, you have this heavenly scene takes place before this, and you're introduced to these 24 elders. They're standing around the throne of God and the throne of the Lamb. And I believe these 24 elders represent the 12 apostles plus the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 sons of Jacob, together representing the whole people of God. But more importantly, what are they doing? They're all wearing what on their heads? Golden crowns. And what do they do? Chapter 4, Revelation 4, look at verse 10. Actually, start in verse 9. It says, And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, verse 10, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. They're there. They're in a privileged position. They're around the throne. They have crowns of glory. But what did they do? Nothing. They cast their crowns before the throne. Worthy are you, O Lord. The same truth for us. We owe it all to him the Savior, the Redeemer, just to think that the King of kings and Lord of lords would suffer and die for you, a sinner, a rebel, an enemy. It should make you in your heart say to him be the glory. I want to I give it back to him. What, what do I do? What can I do? We can't pay him back, but we can give him glory. You hear, hear about this? This is what awaits you when Christ returns. Resurrection, reward, reigning with him. It should excite you. It should encourage you, and it should elicit a response from you. And therefore, lastly, I want us to cover this, number six, what it means for you now. Talking about the consequences of Christ, his coming back, his return. What does it mean? Well, what it means for believers, yeah, that's good when he returns. What does it mean, though, for you right now? How should this impact you right now? Jesus, he's not here. He's ascended to the right hand of the Father. We, we want him to come back. We long for him to return. We want the kingdom to come and all that that means. And that means we, we want evil to be judged. Yes, we want righteousness to prevail. We want the kingdom to come. And if that's you, if you've tasted the Lord's kindness, if you long for his kingdom, then that should move you. It should affect you in your life. And first and foremost, it should move you to holiness. It should move you to holiness. If you genuinely long for his appearing and all that he brings, it should seriously move you to live rightly in light of that. Just think of all the, the judgment on evil. And even though we're saved from that, it should make us just want to purge ourselves from every bit of sin in our lives. And also you think about your fellowship, how you will dwell with the Lord of glory, and even though we're unworthy of that, it should make you now want to be like him as much as possible. Why don't you do this? Why don't you turn to one last passage? It's in Titus 2. It's such a watershed 
passage, you just got to see it for yourself. So turn backwards to, if you can, find it, Titus chapter 2. This is where we learn about the second coming, the blessed hope. But he says, Paul says such a, a profound thing about what it means for us now, how this truth of Jesus coming back is meant to impact us now. Second coming, or rather second, no, sorry, Titus chapter 2. And if you're there, look at verse 11. He says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, verse 13, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. These things speak and exhort and prove with all authority and let no one disregard you. Look, what's he saying? Jesus died to redeem you from what? From sin and to purify you, to make you a people for his own possession, holy and blameless. And when he returns, that work will be complete. That will be finished. But now, his saving grace instructs you right now, in light of the blessed hope of his return, to deny ungodliness and to live righteously when? In the present age. In the present age. In light of all that, his grace instructs you to deny ungodliness and to live righteously in the present age. Peter says the same thing. Second Peter, he's looking forward to the Lord's coming. He's looking forward to the eternal kingdom, the new heavens, the new earth, after which this whole place will be burned up. Nothing will survive. The present heavens and earth are done away with. And the point that Peter makes is, how should you live in light of that end, the ultimate end, the eternal kingdom? How should you live now? And he says, 2 Peter 3.11, Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking forward to and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat? It's a rhetorical question, but it's an obvious answer. Look, it's it's all going to burn. Nothing lasts in this world except the Lord. So don't live for this world. Don't live for the things of this world. Live in light of eternity. And so he says, verse 13, but according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Verse 14, therefore, in light of that, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless, and blameless. We look forward to being with the perfect Lord in a perfect world without sin. So why don't you start living like that now? He says, be diligent to pursue that now. And for the past several weeks, we've been grappling with a very heavy subject of God's, God's judgment, God's wrath. Now for us who you know Christ, though, it, it doesn't apply. At least we can say that, like it doesn't apply to us. But still, just seeing God's holiness on the world, his wrath unleashed against sin, it should make you want no part of it. It should make you hate the garment polluted by the flesh. Look at what sin has done to the world, to others, to your own life. What has sin done in your own life? How has sin wrecked your own life? Now, we're redeemed. We're thankful for that. But first and foremost, it should drive you to, I want no more part of that. It should drive you to holiness. What does Christ's coming mean for you right now? First, it should mean holiness. It should move you to holiness. Secondly, Christ's coming should move you to evangelism. 1 Thessalonians 2, 19-20, Paul says, For who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. Paul is basically encouraging the Thessalonians. He's telling them that they're his reward. When Jesus comes back, they're his reward. They're the fruit of his evangelistic effort that he looks forward to, he exalts in. Looks like Peter said, Nothing on this planet will endure. This heavens, this earth will be obliterated and God will create a new heavens and a new earth. So nothing will last except one thing, 
Do you know what that is? In this creation, what lasts? People. People are the only thing that carries on from then till, or now till then. Do you realize every single person that God ever created is eternal? Every person will live forever, either with God or away from God. And if you understand that and you believe that, that tells you what matters. Well, people matter. That's really all that matters. Of course, apart from the Lord, but you know what I'm saying. People matter. And therefore, you should do what with your time? Maybe invest in people and invest eternally. Evangelize. That's what you can do. It's what God tells you to do. You can't make people believe, but you can warn them of a judgment. And you can give them the good news of the gospel. They can be saved. Pray for them. Just do what God calls you to do. Look, in short, if you believe Jesus is coming and with him comes judgment, it should light a fire under you to get serious to tell people before it's too late. That's what the Lord wants us to do. Lastly, we'll finish with this. What does Christ's coming mean for you now? It means holiness. It means evangelism. And lastly, it means perseverance. It should move you to perseverance. You know, right now there's mockers. They deny the faith. They ridicule you for your faith. There's also temptation. Just the lusts of the world are drawing you after them. It's like everything around you is screaming at you. Just, just deny the faith and give up. But all the more, that's why you need to behold God's truth in his word to speak to your mind, especially the truth of the second coming. Yeah, it's a test of faith, sure, but, but believe. Believe that Jesus is coming back and he has his reward with him for those who persevere. For those who persevere. Therefore, all you need to do, in short, just, just stand firm. Just stand firm in the faith. I love this verse, 1 Timothy 6, 12 through 15. Paul says, fight the good fight of faith. Just fight it. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. He says, verse 13, I charge you, keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the proper time. What's the admonition? Just stay in the fight. Don't, don't give up. Persevere. He's coming. He is coming. Just hold on until you die or he comes. Just keep fighting. You have a part to play, and your part is to stand firm, to persevere in the faith. But you may say, you know, it's hard. Like Rod was saying, the race is long. It feels like I'm going uphill. There's hardship. Sin is heavy. Life is hard. How can you endure? How can you possibly finish this race that's so long? The answer is, you can't on your own. You can't on your own. But you can through God and the power he gives you. Take comfort in the fact and knowledge that that God gives you the grace to start the race, to save you, and he gives you the grace to finish the race as well, to sustain you through to the end. And what God starts, he always finishes. Philippians 1.6, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus when he returns. Or this one, 1 Thessalonians 5.23 and 24. He says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. And that that pretty much sums it up. Faithful is he who calls you, and he also, he will bring it to pass. And that applies to everything we've learned. The second coming, and surely what it means for us. Faithful is he who called you, he will bring it to pass. Jesus is coming. Make sure you are right with him now believe in the gospel if you need counsel for that see myself talk to someone here and for the rest pursue holiness evangelize persevere the second coming that the blessed hope it's not just some doctrine to fill your mind with but this truth it's given to to energize your life as you call upon these truths let them give you just a renewed passion to run your race 
stand firm, just to persevere, to keep going. Because he is coming, and he is coming quickly, and his reward is with him for those who are faithful. So be found faithful when he returns. And every time we end the same prayer in light of this, Lord Jesus, come and come quickly. Let's pray. Oh Lord Jesus, we must echo that prayer any time we think of the second coming, that you would come and come quickly. From our perspective, the world is spiraling out of control. Evil is already starting to overtake it. It's been that way for a while. We know it's only bad getting worse, and it will get so much worse before the end. But in your mind, there's nothing out of control. Everything is going according to your sovereign plan for your glory and for our good. So we cling to that. We cling to that truth. We, we still, though, pray that it would, it would be sooner rather than later that you would get a move on. You would come and, and finish this. We pray your kingdom come. And what that means, that, that means judgment, but that's just. You know, we're, we're no better. We, we, don't, we don't deserve anything. But that also is an occasion for us to praise you because we've passed out of that judgment into life, again, through Christ, through you yourself. All the more reason to praise you. Pray for the kingdom to come, the judgment to come, and also your reign to come righteousness, peace, dwelling forevermore, God and man. Paradise lost, paradise restored. That's, that's our hope. So come. And now, right now, in light of that, though, we look forward to that time. We'll be free from sin. We'll be made complete. We'll be with the Lord. For those who've been moved and changed by you, how can we not live in light of that? That, that affects us. It needs to affect us. Purify us, Lord. May we all hate even the garment polluted by the flesh. They just work hard to, to kill the flesh, to fight sin, and to remove it from ourselves. We fall. We're not perfect. Christ's grace abounds even for this, but purify a people for your own possession, zealous for, for good works to, to serve you in light of what we have to live for ahead. We're comforted. We're encouraged. We have joy. May we live with this joy now, knowing that Christ will come. We thank you and long for that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.